You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome everyone again to the podcast on this episode. We are hearing today from William Paul Young and Brad Jerzak. Paul is author of The Shack, a little book which has sold 23 million copies and been at the center of a much needed spiritual conversation and also the author of other books, Crossroads, Eve, and Lies We Believe About God, and a video uh, series that is uh, coming out available called Restoring the Shack, which I would invite everybody to check out. Brad is author of Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, A More Christ-Like God, A More Christ-Like Way, Can You Hear Me, and In, Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and the Lamb. Most recently, Brad has written his first work of fiction in collaboration with Paul titled The Pastor, A Crisis, which is, a, a, which is available and out now. It's not a long novel, but it sure is an intense one. Brad is Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada, Paul and Brad, welcome to the podcast. We are honored to be here. And thanks for having us. I'm just happy to be here. I'm just happy to be here with you guys. I was thinking about uh, what I wanted to say to uh, both of you. And uh, I guess what I want to say to you is that I'm especially fond oh, of both thanks. of you. And that you have been some of the neatest people that I have uh, gotten to meet on my spiritual journey in life. And so getting to have this conversation, it really uh, means a lot to me. And I, the idea that I had in, in this podcast is I wanted to share my thoughts about my best understanding of a wonderful vision of God. And so I put those together in the book. And then I thought I wanted to introduce people that might read the book or listen to the podcast to the voices of the people that appeared in the book. So you guys are both characters in my book. Uh, so that's cool. Brad, you were so, you gave me my first uh, recommendation for the book and you wrote the foreword. And then uh, Paul, you're, you know, I quote you extensively in the book and you have a lot of neat things to say in it. So I'm just really excited to, uh, to have both of you uh, here on the, on the podcast. So I'm ready to kick this off with my uh, first question. Here it is uh, to you guys. Do you think someone can legitimately be a Christian who takes the Bible and church tradition seriously and also believes that it is possible that all will finally be saved. Absolutely. It's totally possible because I know you. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, I sure hope it's possible because, he, <laughs> I mean, even the great, the great theologians of ancient times who defined orthodoxy were all in on that. Some of the great ones like St. Gregory of Nyssa, who's the final editor of the Nicene Creed, and he was called the father of the fathers, but full on believed that all shall be saved. So, I mean, if he got it wrong, then maybe we got the Trinity wrong. Maybe we got the incarnation wrong. Maybe we got the creeds wrong. Maybe, you yeah. know, so it certainly, it certainly was an open question a long time ago. And thank God it's becoming an open question again today. Because there was a lot back in the early church this was not a contentious issue. Um, different different people had different opinions about it, but it was it was not one of those things that split relationships. And mm -hmm. then um, it seems like the more dogmatic we got throughout history, the more we found things to split relationships over. 
And so we're in the backwash of some of that. But in in the early church, it was obvious that like when the Nicene Council got together, that there were different views on teleology, you know, how everything was going to work out. And yeah. the, those, those, those were never the issues that everybody was contentious about. I know that. I know that now. And, and you guys know that now. But I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in church, but I, I was taken to church and I visited church. And let me just say that I, I grew up in Texas in the in the Bible Belt and the churches, the churches that I visited and the people that spoke authoritatively to me about Christianity. That was not even on the table. The idea no. that it might even be possible. That was I mean, that was not on the table at all. And so I didn't even know that was part of Christianity when I was growing up. Yeah, and I resonate with that, you know. So I grew up very evangelical, fundamental, and, you know, we were all in on the late great planet Earth and, you know, that that view of eschatology. I was thinking about this today, and I wanted to ask Brad, too, about how how did he first get engaged in this part of the theological conversation? Because for me, um, I was in my late 20s, right around 30 years old, and I was part of a think tank. A, a small group of us got together, um, 10 mm -hmm. to 12, you know, once a month, me and a uh, seminary, conservative seminary professor started this. And we, we did this because there were all these issues we wanted to talk about, but it was, there was nowhere safe to do it. Mm -hmm. Especially in the church, it wasn't safe. And, yeah. and especially for a conservative theologian, who uh, was a tenured professor at a at a very conservative seminary? So we started it, and we had we had only one rule, and that was what we talk about stays here because right. really, it was his potential job security and reputation that could be at risk. But he, he needed a place, and um, right. just and that's to probably have an open and, and and that's probably a reason why uh, there's not more of this conversation. It's starting to happen more and more, but there's a lot of people that might be coming to this. These views are sympathetic to them, but they just can't talk about it for professional reasons. Yeah, when we could we could do the same thing with evolution or a whole bunch of other con conversations where it seems like the you know we forgot that we could strain out the gnat and swallow the camel, and we've made everything kind of a make it or break it issue, and mm -hmm. and we just and it's like no. None it's kind of, of brittle. Everything, right? The world is kind of brittle. So I got this. So, I got this email from my mom, and she says, "So I know you. You talk about this little group that you're having." I. She said, "There's a guy in the church that came to us, and they they told us about this Greek word Ionios, mm -hmm. and and would you do a word study on that for us? Because we don't know any Greek or anything." And I said, "Sure." Not having a clue what I was stepping into because. This was not a formed uh, arena for me. And um, uh -huh. so I start doing just a simple word study. It turned into a hundred page research project um, yeah. on, on Ionios going like, wait a minute, there's all kinds of stuff going around about this <laughs> word. Right. And that's what introduced me to the conversation. And frankly, it, it became a major bone of contention because even in this safe group, it turned out that wasn't safe. That yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's same. interesting how how it's the, that that particular. If you cross that 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 is really sort of out of out of bounds. Even just bringing that conversation up. Why do you think that is? Uh, and I'm going to address this to Brad. 
So why do you think this particular issue is so highly charged? And and to put it in to put it in a vernacular that I think you and I agree with is that the conversation is about whether ultimately everyone will be fully restored back to a face-to-face relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or even the possibility of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, so there's that spectrum. Is that even a possibility? And so why do you think, you would think that that everybody would hope that that's true. You, You would think that, even hope that the possibility of it could be there. Why yeah. do you think it's so contentious, Bradley? Yeah, I, I think um, here's the thing is we really, at the heart of evangelicalism, for example, there's this, a real concern that people would have eternal life. And we, we boiled down our entire salvation story to a way to avoid hell and a way to get into heaven. It became about only that almost in, in mm-hmm. terms of the popular preaching that what was the end game of a Billy Graham crusade? It was, it was to rescue from you from hell into eternal life. And so, so there's two sides to this coin. Certainly up until the last 40 years, 30 years, any challenge to the idea that there's an hell as eternal conscious torment, a challenge to that sounded like we were putting all those souls in peril. In other words, if you stop telling people they're going to hell forever, then you're causing them to go to hell forever. Mm-hmm. And how dare you do that? And so it's like you're you're actually leading people to hell by offering them some kind of hope. I say 40, 30, 20 years ago because that shifted now. And Here's how it shifted for me. I began to have people show up secretly for Nicodemus meetings of two types. One group was were people who said, I am ready to follow Jesus because I've met him, especially through encounters in listening prayer, inner mm-hmm. healing, all of that. But I can't. I'm like, why can't you? Because I can't believe in hell. And so therefore, I have to reject Jesus. The second group would come. Nisbet were people who were already Christians, lifelong Christians, who were saying, I I wanted to let you know I'm going to be renouncing my faith and walking away from Jesus. Why? Because I can no longer believe in hell as eternal conscious torment. I would rather walk away from Jesus than have to believe in that. So now, so that's a very big shift in this sense. It used to be that preaching hell would keep them out of hell. Now, preaching hell sends them to hell. (laughs) <laughs> or at least at least it causes them to turn away from Jesus. So at that point, I'm like, we'd better double check whether hell is really a deal killer because people are leaving Jesus because of it. So we'd better make sure that this is actually what the Bible requires us to believe and what the historic church right. required us to believe. And and yeah, what it, I it found was becoming out a is barrier it's becoming a barrier just to even I, I can't get to Jesus because of the hell because uh, of the hell thing. Or I'm I'm having to leave Jesus because now I've become convinced that Jesus represents a God who is not loving. Yeah. And so I have to leave. Yeah. I think so it's still the evangelical impulse in me that wants to say no, Jesus is better than that. And I think there's another issue too and that is when you posit the idea, the possibility that everyone will ultimately res- be restored back to face-to-face relationship, 
fully enfolded into the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an ultimate sense. Uh -huh. One of the immediate responses you get is, so you're saying that the way you live your life doesn't matter. So there's an issue of justice that right. underlies the conversation as well. And so when people hear, it's like, they hear two things. One is, so you can live your life any way that you want. And ultimately it's, you know, it's going to be okay. So just, you know, live however you want. And the other one is, you mean I have, I have through gritted teeth and, and, you know, clawing nails hung on to a form of righteousness all this time for what, you know, right. and this is where the rewards and the punishments become really a big deal. It's right. like I've been working on all these points. I've been working on all, all these points and you're telling me that this is not a points game. Right. Somehow. And, and, and it's like, oh, so you can go out and kill people and right. we're both going to end up in the same spot. And that's how people hear this conversation. Yeah, yeah. that's the older brother in the prodigal son right. saying, A, I'm offended because I've structured my faith around slaving in the fields. And B, it's also wrongly inferring that we're saying that it's no problem for the prodigal son to, to stay in the pig pen. It's like, no, we're saying come home. And we're even saying eventually everyone will. But like, that doesn't mean go live however you want. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean go, go live like the prodigal in hedonism or the older son in, in religiosity. It's still alienation. And, and um, so I think the invitation is come home. And when that's I, never, when I've tried that's to never been taken off the table. When I've tried to describe this to the to folks, I would say back in the early church, some of the early church fathers, you know, they believed they believed in. Some of them were quite confident that there would be an ultimate restoration. Some of them thought it was a possibility, uh, but they but they had this idea that there could be ages upon ages of correct correction, which would be necessary, so that it. You know, they didn't. They thought that this aeonios uh, colossus that that God would put people in this eternal correction or torment or punishment, however you that even if it bended towards, even if it ultimately bended towards restoration, it was still something. It's much better to to go through the fire now than to go through the fire then. You know, much better to face it now. Yeah, yeah I want to read you something I wrote to Paul this morning on text. Um, here's how I would say it. Yes, the scriptures proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by means of whom, so only by means of whom, Christ, right. all shall ultimately be saved. I can show you about 32 passages that say that. Yet, we live in an existential reality of authentic choices. One of those choices is to take the road that leads to alienation and destruction. And so the alienation and destruction, they, they may only you know, be penultimate. That means second last, but that doesn't make them less real or less tragic. So our turning from love and life and light and God and is devastating and to ourselves and to others and returning is required. Um, so Jesus will say, Paul will say, do this and you will live, you know? So, so we're not saying don't come home to the father's house. We're just say it, we're and we. I would say we we would agree that great tragedy comes in this life right. from from wandering off, right? Yeah, right. And, and, we, have, and it just, we have a very realistic view of brokenness 
you know, rather than an ideological view of it. And it's like, don't you understand the devastation? Haven't you seen it in your own marriage? Haven't you seen it in your own relationship with your kids? Haven't you seen it? You, you think that going out there and living any way you want because of the, you know, and, and you're also, the idea is that somehow you're going to escape a process of dealing with your crap. And you're not. The promise is that everybody gets salted with fire. And um, so, I, you know, this, this conversation is way bigger than just the simplistic way that it's presented and fought over yeah. in, in so many respects. And I think part of it is that we've got to define our terms very well. We've got to talk about salvation and we've got to talk about, you know, um, what this fire is. Is it punitive or is it restorative? I mean, those are all questions that become very, very important to this conversation. But we do, like Bradley just said, we have to keep in mind how devastating brokenness is. Right. And it's like, that's not a good choice. It's a real one and one that you can continue to make. And But we're here to tell you the good news that, you know what, you don't have to go down that road or you don't have to continue down that road. And yeah, so it's quite thing. possible. It's quite possible to declare the gospel of the how essential and necessary. I mean, it's the, 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 the moment really is fraught with decision and consequence right now. I mean, yeah. heaven and hell are, are, are at hand at the moment. So really, today really is the day of salvation. We're not saying, it. Oh, you know, it doesn't matter when you get around to this. No, get around to it today. Uh, That's how I see Jesus preaching it in the Gospel of John. You know, in, in the Gospel of John, especially chapter 3, he doesn't threaten them with a forthcoming hell. What he says is, I've come because you're already perishing. You're in it. Watch the news, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then um, and then he doesn't say, I've come to offer you a someday heaven. He says, you can have eternal life now by knowing me. So then um, the concern about, you know, will my perishing or my life extend into the afterlife? Well, whatever. <laughs> but I, I just see the human condition as so in, in such dire needs of a savior that he doesn't wait till we die. He, he came into this space time continuum, you know, to, to set right what is here and now and offer us a way to freedom where we're from the, the bondage and enslavement we're already in. Yeah. He's come into a pre-existing condition. Yeah. To, there's a present, there's free. a, uh, there's a, when I got to study the Greek of the new Testament, there's a present tenseness of what's happening. We are perishing right now. We are, we are receiving eternal life right now. We are either perishing ones and li or living ones right now, not off in the future somewhere. It's, it's all happening right now. It's an in-the-moment kind of thing. Let me, let me ask you guys, okay, so uh, we're talking about the idea that, that you can find in Christian spirituality, the idea that, that God is so intent on loving us and reconciling with us. Do you think it's actually possible that God may actually succeed in doing this with everyone? So where, what are some people I think are surprised to find this out? You know, that that's in the Bible. Where is this in the, where is this in the Bible that you find the hope for this? Um, w one of the ways that you can look at this really simply is, is to look at how the new Testament uses the word all. <laughs> and I'm uh -huh. just, I'm just, it's remarkable how many, how many of these, these texts are overt. So 
you know, 1 Corinthians 15, when all things are subject, subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father, who put all things into subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Or mm-hmm. um, 1 Timothy 2 says um, that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all he, he's come that all men would be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Or 1 Timothy 4, 10, that he's the savior of all men. Or um, I, I love the the Adam and, and Christ kind of apposition where it's like, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. Mm-hmm. And then one other branch, so that you've got the all things going on there, but then in case he runs into people like us, uh, Paul will will be even more explicit and he'll say, look at all includes all in heaven, all on earth and all under the earth. He, he says yeah. this both in, you know, in Philippians chapter two, every knee is going to bow heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess. And that language, the language of confession is the same language he uses it. If you will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's positive. I and mean, it's out of Isaiah in a worship passage. Yeah. So we're not talking about gritted teeth or finally admitting this. You, you know, it, it's 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 a it's the language of worship, mm-hmm. and uh, so too with so too with Colossians chapter one. Again, it's everything visible and invisible is is going to is reconciled through His blood. So I see I see especially the Apostle Paul going to great lengths to say, look at everyone's included. Just as all were included in the in the great turn of Adam, so all are included in the great return of Christ. And then he says, "So, so now participate." There is a summons to respond to what he's done for all, and it, and so I I think that's hugely important. And but at the end of the day, the red letters do it for me. If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I will drag. Yeah, drag. It's the yeah, that's a helpful dragnet. That's a strong. That's a strong word, isn't it? It's yeah. only used three times. Once when there were so many fish, they had to drag the net onto the shore. There's right. One Without losing Paul, them. Paul. Yeah, and Paul and Silas were dragged before the city council. And now, if I be lifted up, of course, speaking about the cross, I will drag all men to myself. And Paul comes along behind that and says, "When he died, we all died." And when he rose, we all rose. And when he ascended, we all ascended. The all is is inclusive of everyone. And it's like, okay, that is a flat out statement that we can then begin to, well, so how does this work out? But the, the fact that we are included, every human being has been included in the finished work of Jesus. That's a pretty significant statement. And that's and also so why, do, why does the summons matter, Paul? The summons matters because of love. You know, um, I, I have a, a friend who is in, he, he's passed away and he's, his reputation is in deep, legitimately deep negative waters at the moment. And uh, because of choices, because of, of, of not heeding elements of the summons in his life, but But he would say, you know, that at the time that God chose to create, there were basically four choices. One is to not create, so we wouldn't be having this conversation. Another is to create just an absolute uh, machine where everything functioned by natural law. 
And mm -hmm. so you just build it and it would be a complex machine. And we have elements of natural law all around us. Right. You know, and uh, the third way to create was to create the same as number two, except create human beings who thought that they had personal agency, but actually didn't. In other words, they thought they were free to make choices, but it was so complexly wired that they actually weren't. So they could never ultimately say no to love, but they, they could live within the illusion of having personal agency, right? They could mm -hmm. create things, they could do things, but they couldn't violate, they couldn't say a no to God. And, and so that sounds like what we want. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of our definitions of heaven, frankly. And the fourth way is to actually create a universe that functioned with natural law in which human beings had personal agency such that they could say no to love. And in order for love to exist, there has to be the freedom to say no to it. If your no doesn't matter, your yes doesn't matter. So this issue of personal agency means that human beings are of such a creation, such a magnificent creation and a magnitude of being made in the image and likeness of God, that our capacity to say no is absolutely respected. And this is a love that is submitted engagement, right? Is mm -hmm. it, this is, this is, we find out by looking at the cross and Jesus, by the way, is the good news, hopeful universalism or you know, the ultimate reconciliation, that's not the gospel. That is an expression of an element of it, but it is not the gospel. That's, we don't put our hope in that. If, even if we had no conversation about that, our hope is built in what we have experienced in the present person of Jesus Christ and his coming into this world and his taking up the cross and including us with that, right? In a world where you have an ability to choose, God continues to submit to it. And that's a crazy thought. We don't think that God submits to us, and yet God submits to us all the time. And you see it in the life of Jesus. You see it in you know, the cleansing of the dust of death off the human feet. You see it in just the submission to the cross. That's human choices. That's, mm -hmm. you know, God doesn't build crosses. And so, you know, human beings build crosses in order to, to devastate one another's lives. Yeah. Jesus submits to it. Jesus is God submitting to our no. Well, this and, is okay. So how, how do you win the no? You love someone to the place where they, they repent, confess, repent, and, and change. Change, turn their direction to face-to-face -to -face relationship. Well, this is really the interesting, and the interesting point that you. This is why I include you in my book underneath the the category of hopeful, a hopeful universalism, which is uh, which is the idea that there is this there. Even though we're all included, there still is the the possibility of an ultimate no, because that's what relationship requires. And for some, so I come at it from a a more uh, Christian, thoroughgoing Christian universalist position. But there's some people that if, when I say I'm a Christian universalist, they just they just don't like that word universalist, and well for, for and a lot they, of good reasons, and they don't like 
you know, yeah. And, I, you know, I understand. I kind of, I like it. I actually, Christian universalist, I, I like that term. I'm happy with it. But what I'm also happy about is if somebody says to me, I just can't go there, then I can say, well, meet my friends, uh, William Paul Young and Brad Jerzak. Go hang out with them uh, because they're yeah. hanging out in a, in a really beautiful place. Yeah, I would just be really cautious to not reduce hopeful to wishful or doubtful. Right. My hope is not wishful thinking. My hope is Jesus. And so in that sense, um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, you know? Mm-hmm. So so don't don't mistake hopeful for well, I think maybe an ultimate no is possible. It's like I don't I don't think that. Ultimate's a very strong word. It is. <laughs> and so in I should I can only speak my, for myself, but I, I would put it this way. Um, I believe in an ultimate yes because without violating my will, Christ can heal it. And so the problem with my will in this life is that I resist the good and I vacillate between turning to and turning from because of a dysfunction that entered into the human race through Adam. But there's a healing of the will that re-entered the human race in the Garden of Gethsemane through the surrender of the Son to his Father, so that when we see him face to face, if my will is healed, it will be like Paul seeing the light on the road to Damascus, and he will just get it and freely, voluntarily, without violation to his agency whatsoever, choose the good because that's what we were created for. And so in that sense, I, I, I would say, uh, yes, there are hopeful uh, inclusivists who, who do regard an ultimate no as possible, but I, I just can't. I wouldn't be in that camp because, you know, Maximus the Confessor had this beautiful vision of how the Garden of Gethsemane becomes a, um, it becomes a preview of the Philippians too, of us bowing the knee willingly and joyfully and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and saying, oh, Paul's version of hope isn't a psychological condition. Paul's vision of hope is an objective future that I'm I'm resting in um, through relationship. But the, the and the thing to be careful of there is our uh, my hope is not in a doctrine of universalism. My hope is my hope is in the person of Jesus, and it's a hope's been that word's been abused in 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 mm-hmm. this context i think a lot to as even you know david bentley hart would would critique the hopeful folks saying look at you know they they don't have a strong conviction about it sure they do he he's just he's just butchered the word what what hope means in the new testament and it's a it's a blessed hope it's a sure hope of the glorious appearing of our lord that we look forward to with joy and uh, I look forward to it with confidence that when we see him and every eye shall see him, our eyes will be opened and the, the, um, the distractions and the delusions and the deceptions in this life that make us say no are going to be removed. So it should be a no-brainer. At least that's what I expect. Paul, do okay. you see it that and, way or do you have some so, nuances? Well, the nuance for me is then... Um, why ages of judgment? Because when we see him, but when do we see him? And, and what blinds us from seeing him? Or to put, it a, put the question a different way that I would ask you, and that is, will God heal our will apart from our participation? 
That's a, it's a good question because I'm not able to, and this is one reason we should not be dogmatic about any position. Yeah. It is hard to harmonize the various visions of the Bible and the fathers, but um, I'm, I'm, I, I wonder what is the participation necessary for a blind man to be healed? The way Maximus handles that is when our, when our blindness is healed, we still have to look. We, you know, uh, we, if the will is healed, we still have to activate that, the healed agency and so on. But you've raised the issue of ages upon ages. And, and, and this is where I don't think Max can help us. But the way Gregory did it is he said, look at, we construct a lifetime worth of attachments to worldly stuff. And he said, picture that. Well, it's actually his sister Macrina said it. Picture, picture building a mansion of your attachments in this world. Mm-hmm. Attachments to people, attachments to stuff, attachments to addictions, even attachments to regret. And when you die, that house collapses on you. And then your free, your friend Jesus walks by, and because of love, he hears your groans, and he cannot just leave you there. And so they imagine this ages upon ages of judgment, although, you know, whatever that means even. Yeah, whatever that um, means. But, but of Jesus pulling you out of the rubble. But if you, if you have habitu- hab- habituated yourself to defiance and willfulness and all of that, then, then pulling you out of the rubble, it's, that's a painful process because you've been, let's say, impaled by rebar and splinters when the thing crashed down, right? Yeah. So I watch this with people's lives even before they die and and that the love of Christ is pulling them out. And, oh my goodness, it's hard to let go of who we are and what so what I think is uncertain, what is a mystery is how long or how difficult the letting go will be. Mm-hmm. Um and how painful and how thorough and how well it'll be thorough but how long does the cleansing take? Could it could it be ages upon ages, uh, or could it just be this is the judgment of the coming age? And so I know Pope Benedict he 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 said let's be agnostic about this. We don't know if it's an instant or if it's a horrendous amount of time. We just we just know that Jesus is going to do his work. And, uh, but I, I kind of, no, I, I fully agree with Paul. There's participation in this. Yeah. So the burning away of wood, hay and stubble is, is, Mm -hmm. is not an instantaneous model. It's, it's the analogy is one of process, right? And the refiner's fire as well. Right. Uh, And the launderer's soap. So, so you can see how that Malachi would put together those two images refiner's Mm -hmm. fire and launderer's soap to make a point that this is restorative. However long it takes, whatever form it takes, it's a pathway to restoration that hopefully we engage in in this life. As Um, opposed to punitive. Yeah. This is such a different, you know, when when I was uh, growing up, the the word hell just meant a place that, that either you got right, whatever that meant, in this lifetime, or you were going to be thrown into hell, and that hell, there was nothing restorative about hell. They, they never talked about it, that hell was going to be a place that God was going to be. Hell was a place that God wasn't going to be, and that you were going to be there forever, and there was going to be no restoration that was going to happen there. It was, 
God was up on high and he is far removed from us and his holiness has been offended and his, his holiness is infinite. Therefore, his punishment will be infinite. There won't be any getting better. There won't be any learning anything. You'll just, you'll just be for all eternity reflecting more and more in your pain about uh, how, you, how you have offended his majesty. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's reasons why they thought that too. Uh, you tend to have a in, in the in the Western Western Christianity, hell tends to be separation from God. Uh, it's a place where you go away yeah. from God, right? It seems and there's that lots Western Christians. Yeah, that Western Christianity is almost all about separation from God. Yeah, and and and, and Jesus talks like that when he says that, that he sends them away into outer darkness. He says, "Depart from me." So there mm-hmm. is, there are texts like that, but there's also another set of texts where God is the consuming fire, where the river of fire flows from His throne, and heaven or hell are are an experience of that fire as either something uh, painful if we hate love and heavenly if we love love, but it's a fire, it's the lo- the fire of the love of God that consumes the wood, hay, and st- stubble. So it's two entirely different imageries, both mm-hmm. drawn from Scripture. And again, that's why it's difficult to harmonize these, because each of those texts is doing something different, right? They have yeah. different pedagogical yeah. functions. Yeah. Paul, and is there something... They're going to be um, interpreted, those texts are going to be interpreted through the lens that you bring to the text. Mm -hmm. So if you start with punitive, retributive God, then you're going to read those texts in a punitive, retributive way. And if you start with that Jesus is the gospel and that, that we have all been saved in him, that he reconciled, past tense, the cosmos right? For God was in Christ reconciled and reconciled the cosmos to himself, not counting their sins against them. That that's, that is a finished state of being. And so then we're now talking about something that is, that is not the ultimate, but is something that is existentially experienced in one way or the other. And so your lens changes. Let me, let me just digress a bit. And I want to read just one paragraph from Pope Benedict's uh, Space Salvi, which is in Hope of Salvation. And if you want to look it up, it's S-P-E. Second word is S-A-L-V-I. And um, it's one of the encyclicals that uh, Pope Benedict wrote. And uh, in section 47, he says this. Some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the judge and savior. The encounter with him is the decisive act of judgment. Before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. This encounter with him, as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. All that we build during our lives can prove to be mere straw, pure bluster, and it collapses. Yet, in the pain of this encounter, when the impurity and sickness of our lives becomes evident to us, there lies salvation. His gaze, the touch of his heart, heals us through an undeniably painful transformation as through fire. But it is a blessed pain in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves and thus totally of God. In this way, the interrelation between justice and grace also becomes clear. The way we live our lives is not immaterial but our defilement does not stain us forever. 
if we at least continue to reach toward Christ, toward truth, toward love. Indeed, it's already been burned away through Christ's passion. Mm -hmm. At the moment of judgment, we experience and we absorb the overwhelming power of his love over all the evil in the world and in ourselves. The pain of love becomes our salvation and our joy. Now listen carefully. It is clear that we cannot calculate the duration of this transforming burning in times in terms of the chronological measurements of the world. The transforming moment of this encounter eludes earthly time reckoning. It is the heart's time. It is the time of passage to communion with God in the body of Christ. The judgment of God is hope, both because it is justice and because it is grace. If it were merely grace, making all earthly things cease to matter, God would still owe us an answer to the question about justice, the crucial question that we ask of history and of God. If it were merely justice, in the end, it could only bring fear to us all. The incarnation of God in Christ has so closely linked the two together, judgment and grace, that justice is firmly established. We all work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Nevertheless, grace allows us all to hope and to go trustfully to meet the judge whom we know is our advocate or parakletos. Pretty wow. good, eh? That is pretty. That's good. amazing, isn't it? I, that's the section I was I was actually quoting when I mentioned like you you can't put a thing on duration when we're talking about the afterlife. But what a what a blessed hope! And by the way, the, when he says some some are thinking or talking about this, the theologians he's referring to Hans Urs von Balthasar, who wrote the book "Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved," and mm-hmm. and his his. I would call him a hopeful inclusivist. And, and he, he does say, you know, dare we hope? Well, put it this way. We are obligated to hope, preach, and pray that all should be saved because that is the express will of God in the New Testament. Yeah, so in, that book, out, in, in that book, he says, he, he says it is infinitely improbable that all will not be saved. That's a pretty— yeah. that's a, he, that, he he says it's 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 po- because of free will it's possible in principle but infinitely unlikely <laughs> right and so again think about what infinitely unlikely means it means it's not like one in a thousand or ten in, one in ten thousand it's one in infinity that you know but he's still what he's trying to do there is saying this is not deterministic and by the way he he was a heavyweight you know that's Von Balthasar, he passed away four year, four days before he was going to be appointed a cardinal. He was John Paul II's favorite theologian. And then Benedict did his funeral. So, I mean, the, this, is, this is in terms of even the hierarchy of what had been, you could say the Roman Catholic Church was greatly responsible for the terrifying images of hell that people have endured through the centuries. But if they've got to what, you, what Paul just read, Right. Then maybe it's time to Which is a long uh, way from Augustine. That's a long road from Augustine to that point. Yeah. yeah. People people might ask, you know, when they've read lies we believe about God because I'm I'm pretty clear in there about my statement. When asked, do you, do you believe that everyone has been saved? I say absolutely. With, without any reticence whatsoever. And that is because I think that is the as much as this conversation is still a, a nuanced, fluid conversation, I think we need to be clear about what Jesus accomplished. Jesus did not accomplish it only for a few people or for those who would 
say magic words, right? And, um, and the scriptures are like, no, this reconciliation has taken place in Christ. You may not know it. And frankly, right now, you may not want it. And, uh, or because your attachments are such that it, you're, you're deviating from them. But the gospel is not that we go out and evangelize, telling people that if they don't make a decision, that then their eternal destiny is uh, fixed by death. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, no, our eternal destiny is fixed by Jesus, by Christ and what he has accomplished. And so that's the past tense that is that is used in, in terms of the word salvation. Then there is a present tense. We who are being saved, work out your salvation. That's an ongoing uh, participation in what Christ has accomplished, period, right? And then we look forward to this hope in which every mm -hmm. knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And, now, when and it comes to... Distinctions are important. When it comes to uh, thinking about how, th how this all ends up, I mean, w when you talk to people, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it's... If you got any question about how this all ends up, it, the book of Revelation tells us how it all ends up. There's a great judgment scene, and there's the we see whose whose names are written in the in the book of life. If your name is written in the book of life, then you're good for eternity. And if not, then you get pitched into hell, uh, the lake of fire, and and then you're and then you're done with, as if that settles as if that settles uh, the whole thing. Brad, you have something to say about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, th that would be true if the Bible ended in Revelation chapter 20, but there's two more chapters. Mm -hmm. So in Revelation 20, it lists the people who've been sent to the lake of fire. In chapter 21, we see them again, but now they're outside the city. It's a different image for the same thing. Mm -hmm. But in so in chapter 21 and 22, we see that the wicked listed again are outside the, the gates of the new Jerusalem. And then we see that the new Jerusalem is there, which is the city of God, which is the bride of Christ in whom God dwells, right? And then it says, and the gates of the city will never be shut. And then it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. All who are thirsty, come to the waters. It's like if, the new, if in the new heavens and new, the new earth, the bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem and the gates are still open and the bride is still issuing an invitation with the spirit who's coming into the city. And it tells us that the kings will bring the glory of the nations into the city. Well, up until this point, the kings um, are those who have been deceived by the beast and make war with the lamb and oppress his people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not the good now guys. Now these same, they're the bad guys. And now that's who's coming into the open gates of the city at the invitation of the bride and the spirit. But only, only by means of having their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. So what you're seeing there is, is either a very hopeful future where the gates are, are open, or you're seeing a ver um, some kind of visionary version of what's going on now in this, in this realm. But whatever it is, it's, it's not a permanent foreclosure of, of, of the mercy of God. And so I always say, look at, the, um, that's still just showing us the coming age. It's in 1 Corinthians 15 that we have a more powerful telescope that reveals the end of the ages. After the ages upon ages of processes, right. invitations, cleansing, healing of the trees 
the the tree of life that heals the nations, all of that. That's still there's still some kind of process happening there. In First Corinthians 15, though, it's like if it says, you know, eventually everything is going to come under the reign and rule of Christ. Abs- right. There will be no nothing that's not. And then he will hand that over to his father, and then God will be all and in all. I was reading and, and uh, think- Alaria uh, Ramelli's uh, 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 the, about the wider hope um, book, and she was in, in her talking about origin, and that origin's idea was that was that God was the God of the aeons, but that God was prior to the aeons, and God would be there after the aeons, and so that the aeons were, were, were just what that's that's. That was where God's creative process took place. That's where God is accomplishing everything. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I suppose we'd want to say this, too, that um, this is, again, not just about someday. There's also this sense where uh, we read, is it in Hebrews or no? First yeah. Corinthians 10? We are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Right. The Hebrew <laughs> passage is, we have already come to the city of God, the new Jerusalem. That's the Hebrews passage that says that that Revelation passage is not a chronological thing, right? Right. And if that's so, that also there is a sense in which the new heavens and the new earth, uh, G.K. Chesterton says, on on Easter Sunday morning, the disciples woke up in the new heavens and a new earth. So it's bifurcated reality. But there's this already element that Paul's Paul's talking about here. Right. So, yeah, so, so eternal life. I remember when I discovered that the eternal life that Jesus was talking about. I mean, when I grew up, I thought, well, the eternal life is the life that happens after you die. That's right. when the eternal life kicks in. Well, then I discovered, yeah, no, I the, yeah, no, no, the eternal life is right now. That's the good news. Is the eternal life can be right now, Paul? You said you you, you have some. You grew up that way. I, well, I did. And, and, and so you had to do the right thing in order to get eternal life, you know, so it was, uh, which eternal life way, would after you die. Yeah. By the way, for those who are interested in this whole conversation about the new Jerusalem and her gates, that Bradley wrote this book called her gates will never be shut. That is the title of that book is right from the revelation section. Yeah. And, her gates uh, will never be I shut. Highly recommend that whole. Me too. That yeah. That was a, terms of the conversation about hell. Yeah, that was an important book on my journey, Brad. Thanks for the time that you uh, to put into writing writing that. And that's a scholarly, I mean, that's a scholarly book. I, you know, I read different books on this type of thing, but that's one that fits in the uh, PhD category. And so thank you for uh, making that contribution. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of work on a more popular level, uh, but you're working on a PhD level. And so I just want to appreciate that. And, and so that that uh, her gates will never be shut. That was a major work. I mean, you put a lot into that. It, it was my attempt to answer the questions of those Nicodemus meetings, right? Let's let's just double check if this, if one way, one monopoly on seeing these topics really is a deal killer. And just you know, we you just quoted John seventeen three in in a sense, um, where you know what is eternal life? Well, Jesus says this is eternal life, and he actually is, he's saying it in his prayer to his Father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. You know that that's there. We have from Jesus' own mouth, mm-hmm. in the context of a prayer, so intimate between him and his Father a very explicit and beautiful definition of eternal life 
that is not about a deferment plan or or fire insurance for the next life. You know, it's about knowing him, um, intimate a spousal relationship that you have in a new covenant. Could you tie that to uh, the Matthew 25 uh, passage of the parable of the sheep and the goats, which talks about eternal, the eternal life of God, as opposed to the eternal, and then it's Colossus or Colossan. Uh, if the eternal, if the eternal life of God is knowing, is knowing truly, truly the life of God, then the eternal Colossan would be knowing truly the eternal correction of God to, to know truly what that is in, in a parental kind of way. Yeah, with, with Matthew twenty three, and and we're riffing off the the old saint 25. Uh, Matthew twenty five. Uh, yeah, mean? Matthew twenty five. Yeah, that we're talking about you know the stuff that Saint Clement of Alexandria said in about two hundred when he was leading really the biggest catechetical school in the world, a seminary, or but it was for like uh, thoughtful people. Um, who were investigating Christianity and, and wanted to be baptized. And so he, he taught them that in Matthew 25, that you have this word Ionios as it's a, it's like a adjectival noun. So, and it, um, eternal is really not the right word there. Age enduring. Yeah. I mean, it would be literally like the age, <laughs> but it could be age enduring, like age long or or N.T. Wright suggests that it might be age shifting. Like, um, so you could either say these are this is the judgment and this is the life of the age to come, or it could be this is the judgment and this is the life that that is the segue to the age to come, or that establishes the age to come. So it's a it's a bit tricky. I'm just trying to think when we said in John seventeen three um, eternal life. Yeah, that's the same. That's the same word. So this is eternal life. This is the this is the life of the age. That's how David Bentley Hart translates it: the light, the mm-hmm. life of the age. Um, but w- but we get to experience it now. We enter it today because that's what brings to end the perishing. So because of what Paul Young said earlier about like really death has been defeated, um, we would say death cannot separate us from the love of God. So death's not the issue. What's the issue is is what kind of experience do we want of this life and the coming age? Well, you said you said a word right there, very important. You said death cannot separate us, and so this whole separation thing seems to be at at the at the heart at the heart of all of this. And Paul, you that separ- the whole thing about separation is very important for you. It's very important for me, and um, and let me use kind of an illustration uh, from Baxter Kruger. Actually, he. He was in uh, Colorado, and he was looking out at the at this vista from. Oh, I love that, this story! I love this story. Yeah, he and I were, and and he 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 says because he's a Presbyterian, he says we don't have visions, we have visuals, and so <laughs> okay, in his, in his imagination he got a visual, and he could it was so real he could pretty much reach out and touch it, but it was that spanning this entire width of this landscape, there was a massive dam with all these intricate trees. And I mean, some of the trees as big as building, huge buildings and things like that, that were all interlocking and keeping the water uh, from, um, from coming into the valley, the valleys. And he asked the Lord, what is this? And, 
and the Lord responded that this is this is what keeps the movement of the Holy Spirit restricted in the West. And and Baxter looks and he sees a few massive, massive logs at the bottom that hold the whole superstructure together. And his eye was on one in particular, and he said, What is that? Because his sense was if we could get if we could destroy that log, the whole thing's gonna come down. And and the Lord told him that is the lie of separation. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that says it tremendously, is that we have bought into the idea that the creation has been from the beginning separate from God, contrary to what scripture clearly states, is that everything that has come into being has not come into being apart from him, but is in him, created in him, him being the Christ, Jesus, that in him and now is sustained and held together in him, for him, by him, through him. And that if you were not already in Christ, you would have lapsed into non-being. You would cease to exist because eternal life has got to pump through your personhood by, in terms of the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a reality or you cease right. to exist. And so Jesus acts yeah and so Jesus acts out in his ministry that there is no there isn't this separation so he sits no, at table why that it's it is a fundamental lie and and we believe it and it's so real to us that that sense is called alienation but don't confuse alienation and separation there is no separation right there there is no god turns his face away from you there is no, you, you are so powerful, you can get God to leave your life. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work like that. And this is why we then talk about heaven and hell in terms of relationship to love. You cannot get away from this love. And so if you resist it, the presence of love in your life will be held to you. And if, if you embrace it, the presence of love in your life will be heaven to you. So mm-hmm. it's the conflict between what you want to hold on to, your, the lies that you want to hold on to, the survival skills that you want to hold on to, all the ways that you, are, that you believe that are not true, that have become precious to you because you've created an identity around those things. The Holy, to, to use George MacDonald's line, this is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. And so then you've got the conflict language. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in regards to us in, and God. Including defiance. So Inclu- in other words, if defiance is, is not love, then the fire is going to go even after my defiance. And that's why I can say his mercy endures forever, but I don't believe my defiance can endure forever. His right. loving kindness is everlasting, but I don't believe my rejection of love is everlasting. At least right. I that wouldn't was kind of that was that was kind of George McDonald's idea about it, as I understand him, was that the that that finally that the that the persistence of God and that 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 being in that situation that finally that darkness and the uh, that that the that the ray of light would break through and that we would inevitably reach our hand towards that we would come to that moment where we want to freely reach our hands out of the darkness towards the light. Is, is that where, Paul, would you say that's where Jesus dragging language? Absolutely. Works, yep. yeah. Yep. And it's like, no, salvation, Jesus as a human being takes us on himself. But as divine nature of God, 
in whom you live and move and have your being, you get included into it. Well, that would be another thing. Like if, if separation, if separation is what you're trying to tell people is the big lie, then the, the big truth is then inclusion. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and unfortunately, we created evangelism based on a, the lie of separation. Right. So we think the good news is for, for me to finally tell you that you are separated from God. But here's a way to get here's a, a way to get past it. Right. Yeah. If we could think about the, the parable of the prodigal son as the son starts in the house. The son starts as a son. The father mm -hmm. never disowns him. Yes, through his own delusions, the son experiences real alienation. Maybe he even is living like a slave. Maybe his wildest dream is to be a son again. No, he doesn't even think that. Just a servant. If I could just be a servant. And when he gets home, he finds out he, he was never disowned in the first place. The love had never been shut off and the door had never been locked. And so... Yeah, Baxter always brings this up too. Is it, Paul, is it Colossians where it says that we were alienated in our minds? Yep. That's yep. where it is. It's a delusion that we need to wake up from that becomes a real experience. It's not separation because the, the father's never turned away. He can no talk more. about okay. The, the, we're talking about. The, I just have to get in there on the myth of uh, on the myth of, of of separation. In that you mentioned the parable of the prodigal son. And that gets into, I think, Paul, one of the things you talked about is the importance of the one. So, so here is that we're in Luke 15, and there's three stories in, in Luke 15 that have to do yep. with one. Can and you say some more about that? Yes. So in those three stories, and if you remember, one of them is about the, the widow who loses the might, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. the coin. She loses the single coin. coin. Yep. And all the language in that parable is Holy Spirit language. She, she lights a lamp. I mean, it's all light language, Holy Spirit language. The second one is a shepherd, which is all Jesus language, right? He is the good shepherd, all of that. The third one is the father. So you've got Trinity in three parables all together that are saying and nuancing relationship to us. But here's, and there's some things that cross all three parables. One is the coin is the woman's. The coin before it's lost, it's the woman's. While it's mm -hmm. lost, it's the woman's. When it's found, it's still the woman's. The sheep is the shepherds, right? And and the coin starts in the house, ends up in the house. But the, the sheep is starts in the fold, ends up in the fold, but is through stupidity, naivety, you know, because sheep aren't tremendously intelligent right. animals. It ends up lost, and the shepherd has to go out and find this one. And then you have the two sons. They're the sons before, they're the sons after. But even the elder son is struggling with belonging, even though the younger one who, who acts like he doesn't belong and believes he doesn't belong is restored before the religious older brother can begin to see that he actually has belonged the whole time. But so you've got in the parable of the shepherd, the one that matters. So the 99 are in the fold and this is Jesus who will go after the one. And this, and this becomes very significant to me because when people say, you know, who do you write for? I write for the one, you know, and if, if, if the one is, if, if I can participate in the response of the one, that's holy ground as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. right? The one matters. And this is, this is a basis for ethics and all kinds of things in terms of how we live in this world. It's not, we don't make our decisions based on a group. The one matters and the shepherd's going to go after the one. And mm -hmm. so you've got the same kind of inclusive language 
you belong. You may not think you belong. You may get lost in the house. You may just wander off because of stupidity and bad choices and all kinds of stuff. Or you may think, I don't belong. I'm out of here. Do your own thing. Or you may be the elder brother who is trying to, trying to belong through performance. And these things are true. You always have belonged. You've always been included. You've just lost your mind in one sense or another or been lost in one sense or another. And you are the intent of love is to fully restore you back to who you actually have been the entire time. When I was, uh, when I was, I was beautiful. When I was, uh, back in 1996, I did a doctor of ministry paper and I was covering the three different views on hell. And one of the hell was the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. And so the idea that, that one of the, the scholars that was arguing for eternal conscious torment said, well, you can look in that, in the 15th chapter of Luke, uh, that coin and the sheep and the sun, they're all said to be in a state of apolumai or destruction, uh, but they are still in existence. And so his argument is you could be in hell forever and you could be eternally, you could be in a state of destruction, but still be existing. You could even be in a state of death and still be in existing. Now, now at the it's time... Parable. Well, at the I love time, the, at the, I love how the parable says this, and and he goes out and he, he until he finds them. That's one of my favorite fi- phrases in the whole Bible. He doesn't just until look until he, he finds looks them. Until he finds. Yeah, and 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 you know it. The word is not translated destruction in that context or that passage. It's lost, and the lost will be found, and. So, I mean, there's the, the lostness is not forever because of the one looking. Destruction is a very real thing in that sense. Right. The state of destruction is real. Lost is very real. And it has, you know, it has consequences. I mean, look around us, you know, look in our own lives. But, but here's the thing. I don't care whether you flat out rebelled. I don't care whether, you know, you were, you were in a bunch of circumstances that were not of your making. Um, uh, it, these things all matter, but they have nothing to say about the fact that you are the coin and you belong to the Holy Spirit and you are the sheep and you belong to the shepherd and you are the son, daughter. You know, you belong to the father. These things are true. And you don't have the power to separate yourself from the love of God. You don't. You, you don't possess it. And, I mean, you can think you do, but mm-hmm. you don't. And so this is, death can't separate you. Life can't separate you. Anything in life can't separate you, right? This is Romans, the last two verses of chapter 8, right? Death can't. Life can't. The future can't. The present can't. No created thing can and being a created thing, that means I can't. Mm-hmm. Now, I can live in the alienation of uh, a mind deceived, but this is a God who is going to come find me, right? And that's the promise. This is a God who lays down his life for his sheep. This is a God who climbs up on a cross and includes everyone, whether they're a lost coin, whether they're a lost sheep, whether they're a lost son. They all get included into that. And then the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to draw you back to the truth of who you are so that the way of who you are becomes an expression of this life, this eternal life that has been coursing through your veins 
since since the moment of conception. So this sounds like good news. I'd say it's good news. You and know, so, the way we preach evangelism is like good news is you're separated from God, but Jesus came and the Father beat the crap out of him so that so that he gives you the opportunity. And when and we quote, you know, it when it says so flat out, he died once for all. Mm -hmm. And he never has to die again, right? So people will say, well, that means he just opened up the possibility. There's no language like that in the New Testament. Like, oh, he created a possibility, and now you've got to still save yourself. Now, you do have to save yourself in an existential sense of participating with the Holy Spirit to dismantle the damage that brokenness has brought into your life. Mm -hmm. That's that's enacting or... That is the adventure of working with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to enact the reality that was absolutely once for all established by Jesus, period. So, so it's, it's not coercive. It's not automatic. It's not transactional. This is a real love relationship where because he loved me, I, I now participate in the relationship mm -hmm. as a real agent, reciprocating love with love because I've heard this good news about his, uh, you know, that he, he's not abandoned me, not divorced me, not disowned me. None of that. Is that kind of what you're saying, Paul? That sounds exactly like what I'm saying. And so that's a beautiful thing. That means love is real. Yeah. That means that I actually matter in this relationship, you know, and I think that's part of the thing that people have a negative taste in their mouth about universalism. It sounds like, you know, it makes it sound like I don't matter. Like, oh, it's a done deal. So who cares how I act, you know? And they and they move into that. It's just like nothing matters. And well that's what saying, I and that and that's uh, what I like about the way that you guys are doing this, because I can I can uh, from my side of the fence, universalism is a good is a good word and the, it's the Christian that's the hard part. From <laughs> from your side of the fence, it's the uh, you know, it's the universalism that's the uh, from it's funny from in in my in my world where people kind of get upset with me is they say well sure God is love but you're saying as a Christian universalist you're saying that the universal love of God has to be mediated somehow through Christ to everybody that somehow he's the only he he is he is the only way and so I'm saying well yeah I I think that is I they think that is good news but in a for people who are committed to a pluralistic universalism. I sound kind of, you know, I can sign, I, I can sound kind of, kind of narrow. Well, and, and sadly, some of those who identify themselves as Christian universalists, it, it has become part of the motion to move away from Christ because it doesn't seem that Christ matters that much. You know, it's, it's this love of God that is, and so, you know, and so we're losing in some ways the sense of the centrality and the unique uniqueness and the absolute essential place of Jesus Christ in the middle of this in terms of all humanity. And, um, and so, yeah, it's just the Christian part, Bradley and I would struggle with some too, because of, again, we're back to defining terms. And mm -hmm. a lot of what we see as Christianity has got nothing to do with Jesus at all. Well, and, and so uh, some of this is so, just a struggle of what to call this thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I call it ultimate redemption, and here's why. Um, 
it's now my sense that the popular use of the term universalism, the most popular and dominant use of it, has let go of five essentials of the gospel. Um, it's let go of sin matters, Jesus matters, the cross matters, judgment is coming, and a response is required. Um, I believe those five things are essentials of Christian faith. Too. And so when so if if the most common use of the word universalism dismisses five essentials, it's not a great label for me. But when I say ultimate redemption, what I mean is we need redemption. There is a redeemer. There's a means of redemption and there's a response to redemption. And mm -hmm. ultimately, I think that will that will come about. Other people, similarly, some would call it ultimate reconciliation. You know, yeah. the same idea. But I like redemption in the sense that it has the burning feature to it. You know, it's like... <laughs> Well, it's taking something that has been twisted and reforming yeah. it back to its origin, you know, so which is yeah. the idea of reconciliation, too. And that's a much more relational term. But there is something about just uh, the, the gut level reality of our humanity and that that redemption doesn't eradicate and it doesn't annihilate and it doesn't absorb. It actually redeems. It restores. And uh, the relationship, I think reconciliation is a part of redemption. So I'd, I'd be with Very you. I'd, I'd hold on to ultimate redemption as being clearly. Yeah. And again, you know, we're working with terms here, but you know, why are we? Well, we, cause we want to communicate. And so one of the, one of the things that happens in conversations is if I say, well, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian universalist or I'm some kind of, the conversation's over for me. Most of the time, it's just like, oh, you're one of those. You're a heretic. But if I say, I'm not a universalist, but I believe all shall be saved. They're like, what's the difference? Oh, glad you asked. Now we can have the conversation, right? <laughs> and it opens up um, an exploration instead of being dismissed quickly with a broad brush. So some of this, I think, um, David, has to do with di different audiences we're working right. with. And, and, you, and you both come out, you, you both come out of, even, I, didn't, I didn't come out of an evangelical background. I come uh, from more of a mainline, mainline Protestant uh, kind of background. But you guys, these are your people still. I mean, even yeah. though you're, you're Orthodox now, and the, you, know, you still grew up there, you may, this is where you were born and raised. And so to some sense, these, this is still your sort of family of origin. And readership, yeah. So yeah, and so yeah. I think that's, and I think you can have a real. Your voices are are more credible, uh, you know, because you actually have the the background and the stories. Paul, you were raised as a you know on the, on the on the missionary field, so you have been in it from the from the cradle. You, you've seen you've been through the worst of it, and and uh, thankfully you've uh, you've you've come through. And you know that's debatable in some people's minds, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you know what? Here's here's my apologetic. Look at my life, right? I mean, mm -hmm. examine examine my life. Come come live with me, and and the changes that have happened in my life could have only been produced by something that was right and true and good and beautiful. Because I couldn't do it. I couldn't make those changes apart from something that was right and good and true and beautiful. And so, you know, my apologetic is the way that. I love my wife and the way that I uh, am responsive to my enemies and, and um, you know, the, the things that generate 
the kindness and the goodness of those things. So, you know, something's happened and, and moving away from a punitive, retributive, angry God, you know, and the dysfunction and the relationship between the father and the son, you know, all of those, this, this idea of eternal conscious torment rather than the fire being the very love of God. Those things had a huge impact in the way that I lived my life and freed mm-hmm. me up. So I may not be 100% accurate, which I guarantee you I'm not, about the, some of the theological stuff. I'm telling you that I'm moving in the right direction. And it's, a, it's away from some of those terrible uh, coercive ideologies mm-hmm. that, pa- that pass themselves off as truth. Well, I think that we have had a good, I think that we've had a good conversation. Are there any kind of closing things to kind of wrap up the conversation you guys would like to say? God is good. All the time. Yeah. God, God, period. Yes. Yes. If we can have faith, if we can have faith and, and we can believe that God is good all the time and that God is with me all the time and that God is not giving up on me and that God is truly with me, even in my shack. Yeah. You know that I am not abandoned or separated, even in even in my worst sinful uh, situation or my woundedness. Then that's that's good news that we can carry with us. And I I just want to thank thank both of you uh, for sharing your life journeys and your scholarship and uh, and your writings with us. You've been a tremendous encouragement to me and to uh, and to many other people. And God bless the both of you. And uh, look forward to talking again sometime in the future. Blessings on you, David. Thank you, David. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.